The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. I hope you're all having a wonderful summer. Um, We have a great topic, one that... uh, I think is in the news a lot, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and um, controversy in some respects around um, opiate use and opiate addiction and opiate treatment. And today with us, we have uh, Joni Gamel, and um, Joni is uh, the author of Painkillers, Heroin, and the Road to Sanity. Um, we're delighted to have her on our show. She is um, a registered nurse. She's an interventionist, and she has a lot of experience working with folks that um, have uh, opiate use disorders and opiate addiction. So, Joni, welcome to our show today. Oh, well, thank you, Mary. Let me start by saying I'm very uh, happy and privileged to be on your show today. Thank you very much. Well, I, I guess we should start in the beginning, and that is... Um, the role of opiates in our society. I, Joni's registered nurse. I'm also a registered nurse, and I can, and I can remember in nursing school being trained on how to help people manage pain that was non-medical. That right. you know, certainly we gave medication, but it's non-medical. And and recently we have a new doctor, a, a relatively new doctor that works for us, just out of medical school, and. I think all they're learning about right now is medication. They're not learning about there are other ways to treat pain besides medicating it. And I'm just wondering if that's been your observation or what your experience has been. Yeah, there is a, a bit, there is overuse of opiate medication. And I think the doctors coming out of school now are being more well-versed or taught about the alternatives because of the abuse or overusage. And yes, there are different ways to treat chronic pain and the antidepressants, and I know you said non-medication, but the medication that does work very effectively are the old tricyclic antidepressants. They work on the neuropathways and that and also steroid injections, um, acupuncture and physical therapy. But as you know, all of these modalities take a certain amount of time and commitment where just taking a pill, like an opiate pill, to knock the pain out is much easier. And I think that's where people are drawn to that more than the alternatives for treating chronic pain. Well, and I think there's something in our society that suggests we should be pain-free. And I know JACO, in the, I think it was in the early 90s, a joint um, accreditation commission on hospitals, they started to look at pain, and that's, at least in what I've read, that's when the, the spike in the uh, prescribing of pain medication increased was when there was a regulatory body that started to um, have people focus on it. Yeah, I think that, and, you know, you're right. As Americans, we feel we should be pain-free, which is really, oh, sobering, so no pun intended to me, is that Americans represent 5% of the global population, and we use 80% of the illegal opiates and 99% of all the hydrocodone or Vicodin that is produced globally. So as Americans, we certainly feel that we should not be in pain. But having been a nurse since the 70s, I really see the spike having to do, and I wrote about this in my book, is managed care. Doctors, when managed care came along, just don't, they do not have as much time with the patient that they used to have. And to keep that contract, let's say with Aetna or Blue Cross or any of them, for that practice to keep that insurance company with them, the insurance company now managed the way the doctors practice medicine. 
And they said, you have to see so many patients an hour. And because the doctors had less time to be comprehensive with the patient, I think that's when the prescription pad came out. It's because let's deal with the pain because I don't have as much time to talk about history or as much time to get the phone calls later in the day. Um, so that's when I, because I've been in hospital nursing for a long time, saw the increase in prescription pain medicine. Jenny, could you explain to our audience um, a little bit about what happens to the brain when, when we take opiates? When you take opiates, there's a reward pathway. It's in the midbrain, in the amygdala. And what it does is it increases the euphoria that you feel. And there's a, sort, there's a minority of people, thank goodness a minority, where the euphoria is felt even greater in the amygdala, in that mid-portion of the brain. And those are the people like the mouse that goes back and keeps hitting the bar for the glucose. Those are the ones that become addicts because everyone that is put on opiate medicine is going to become, after a certain amount of time, physically dependent on that medication. But then there's that subclass that are not only physically dependent but are addicted. And those are the people that, for whatever reason, and they actually do know this, they have lower levels naturally of dopamine and serotonin. And so when they get the medicine, not only do they feel euphoric, they feel normal for the first time. They don't have this low-level feeling of depression. And those are the addicts and also the alcoholics. And that's what happens in simple terms in the brain. So for people who are listening, I think it's important to understand that um, opiate addiction is, is a biological process, and it's not a matter of will, or um, and sometimes it, it, it's not even a matter of choice anymore because there's something that fundamentally changes in the brain that um, that keeps somebody from, uh, I guess, overusing it. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Mary, that people that are addicts have lost the power of choice, as Bill Wilson wrote in 1932 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When addicts like myself, and I say this from the podium when I speak, I say if Percocet made you feel the way it makes me feel, you would be using it in an addictive manner too. For this small percentage of people, it is a brain disease. And we have lost the choice. Once we use it, our brains tell us we have to have more and more of it. And we don't have control over it. And that's when you need professional help for addiction. And, and I think the other thing that um, happens, that, that at least I've, I've noticed, is that, you know, in the 70s and the 60s, when you thought of opiate addiction, you thought of people who were abusing heroin and typically, quote-unquote, junkies that mm-hmm. we would see on TV or in the street. And I, and as you mentioned, with the increase of managed care and, and some other regulatory issues, the um, preponderance of opiate medication has flooded our homes and, and our schools and our cities. So, so the typical person who's addicted to opiates is not who we think about from the 60s and 70s or the jazz musicians or the people in Harlem. These, these are people who come into opiate addiction with um, saying, I'm not like them. I right. know I'm not like them. And, and I think that creates some uh, challenges for treatment. It is because the opiate addict, I'm an opiate addict. I'm a mom of two kids in public school. I drive a minivan and I get pulled over and I've had Percocet for breakfast. I get pulled over for running a stop sign. I roll down my window. It doesn't smell like vodka. I don't look like a junkie. I look like a mom. And so since it doesn't meet what people think of as someone as a drug addict, we don't get tested or we don't get profiled, I guess is the best way to put it. But prescription drug dependence right now has actually, it's getting lower and heroin is having a comeback. As an interventionist, I'm now getting calls for people that say, I'm calling about my husband who's an executive who's addicted to heroin. So now we're seeing the balance kind of shift. Prescription drug dependence has been out in the media, and we understand that it's a problem. So the doctors are stopping writing so many prescriptions, and there's new laws that are curbing prescription drug dependence. But whenever there's a hole, something will fill it. So now we see that heroin is having a comeback. 
which is troublesome in numerous ways because there's more disease associated with street drugs than prescription drugs. I think that's classic of what we do in America. You know, we say, okay, we're going to stop doing this, but we don't provide the tools to to help the person who is addicted to opiates um, get the treatment they need so they don't end up having to go to the street to get heroin. We never do kind of a 360 solution. We, We just kind of throw something out there and hope that it sticks. Yeah, and that's a very good point, Mary, because I, let's say, this is an example. I go to my doctor as an addict, and I say I'm having chronic pain, which I do. I, I, had, I got started with prescription drug dependence through chronic pain and had a spinal fusion. So I go to my doctor, and I say I'm having pain, and I need narcotic medication. And he says to me, it's really, I know you're a drug addict, So it's malpractice for me to give you narcotics. Now, I'm having a relapse. I'm in a relapse mode. I'm not really in chronic pain. I'm going in and I'm drug-seeking. If that was any other disease, the doctor would offer some kind of alternative treatment before you got even sicker with addiction instead of just saying, I can't prescribe you, bye-bye. If I came back in, my cancer had metastasized, or if my diabetes and blood sugar was out of control, they would get you to an endocrinologist or an oncologist. Instead, they just discharge you and don't give you an alternative, and then the disease escalates. So a big part of my passion is getting people to recognize this addiction is a disease. Let's treat it like every other disease. When you recognize that a person is having a problem, offer them treatment, saying, what can I do to help you today? How can we get you further help before this escalates? And what is your response when people say, well, if somebody relapses, other people are going to relapse in the program or in the group? What is your response to that? Well, I think you don't want to encourage people to relapse. I don't even like the word anymore. I like the word remission. Because any other chronic illness, if we all agree that addiction is a chronic illness, And so if we agree it's a chronic illness, it's going to present itself like every other disease. If you have multiple sclerosis or diabetes and you're diagnosed with it, you aren't going to go from diagnosis to death without having that disease come out of remission and needing further treatment. Addiction is going to react the same way as all other chronic illnesses. It's going to come out of remission and you're going to see a relapse. With that word relapse, there's a lot of failure that swirls around it. And it's almost, it's hard because you don't want to tell people to expect that because you don't want them to think it's okay to relapse, but you also want to take the shame out of it. If this happens, just get help faster and get better faster. And that's another one of my passions. I think if you can take the shame out of it, people will get better quicker. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk a little bit more about shame and relapse with Joni. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect 
and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, I hope you're having a great week. My name is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today, and our guest is Joni Gamil. Am I saying that right, Joni? No, it's Gamel, no. but you're, you're close, Gamel. Mary. I'm good. close, but no cigar. <laughs> Gamel, um, the author of The Interventionist and also Painkillers, Heroin, and the Road to Sanity. Um, Joni is a registered nurse who has um, worked in a number of medical facilities, including alcohol and drug rehabilitation centers. Um, she's also an interventionist. And um, before we went to our commercial, we were talking about shame and relapse. And I like the way you're reframing the whole notion of relapse because you're absolutely right. This is a chronic illness. And like other chronic illnesses that you mentioned, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, people will go for periods of time and be relatively symptom-free, but there can be an exacerbation of symptoms. And we don't think of them as failing. You know, we have treatment options for them. But when somebody has a brain disease, whether it's a mental illness or an addiction, and they have an exacerbation of symptoms, um, we don't we don't feel the same way about that. And, and I think some of the words that we use reinforce that, relapse, which, in, as you're talking about it, you know, remission certainly sounds much more positive than relapse. I also, you know, I, I talk to my staff about we work with people who have schizophrenia. We work with people who have alcoholism as opposed to using the term schizophrenic or alcoholic or addict because they have negative connotations as well as words. So, so I think it's important that, that we really think this through and talk about it as you're doing. Yeah, I think it just gives it, when you look at relapse, it feels like, like it's a failure. And I deal with family members all the time when I do interventions. They'll say, well, he was in or she was in rehab seven years. It was a failure. And why is another rehab going to work when it didn't work seven years ago? And I say, it did work. It worked for seven years. Just the way if you had had chemotherapy for cancer and you'd been cancer-free for seven years and it came back, you would go back to wherever, Johns Hopkins, get more chemo, get that, get cancer back into remission. That, that rehab was not a failure. That person learned a lot. They learned the foundation and the tools on how to get well. So we really need to get the failure and the word relapse out. And I take it even a step further, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of heat for this, but the CHIP system in the recovery rooms, you get CHIPs for months and years of sobriety. And it's wonderful. It's kind of like stickers to little kids. It's positive reinforcement. But in the CHIP system, let's say you have 10 years of continuous sobriety and you get your 10-year CHIP, and then suddenly something comes along and exacerbates your addiction. A family member dies. You go through divorce. Something happens to exacerbate the disease of addiction, and you use again. Well, you go back to the rooms of recovery, and you get a 24-hour chip. My feeling is if you were cancer-free for 10 years, we wouldn't say those 10 years didn't count. I think you should get a chip for courage and survival, courage that you came back and survival because you made it back alive and keep counting from those 10 years because I think by going back to square one, again, brings shame to this disease instead of positive reinforcement. I think that's a great concept. How can you get people to buy into it? Well, it was funny. I went to a meeting, um, not in my neighborhood. I ran into a sponsor of mine from probably 15 years ago, and she goes to a woman's group in the neighborhood not mine, and she invited me up. And I had never been up there before, and it was a meeting that had a recovery bookstore in it, and I was interested to see it. So I went up, 
and they gave, it was a chip meeting, and they gave all the chips out. And then at the end, the girl said, and we have a chip today, a positive chip for anybody who just needs a hug. And I sat there for a minute, and I even hesitated because I'm shy like everybody else. And finally, I said, I need one of those chips because they were doing exactly close to what I was proposing in my book, giving chips out just for positive reinforcement. Now, that was for a hug, but that still is getting close to it. It was the first meeting I'd ever been to where they gave chips out that wasn't just for years of sobriety. So I put it in my book. I hope it catches on. I'm probably going to catch a little bit of flack um, from some people that are really, you know, basic big book people. But I think even Bill Wilson would think anything that we can do to, to tweak the program to get more positive results, I think he would be our biggest cheerleader. And that's something I hope through my book I can get people to buy into. Well, I wish you great success because I agree with you. I think that would be awesome. Well, thank you. Um, you know, in talking about uh, opiate addiction, we we have to kind of talk about the other uh, kind of uh, red flag when when addiction professionals get together, and that's opiate replacement therapy. Yes. And um, it, you know, if you if you use the meta the the reality that this is a disease. I don't know any chronic illness that is treated in one way, right. and and I think that that's been a real, um, it, it's a fight. I mean, you have you have big name centers who won't use opiate replacement because they don't believe you're sober, and you have other people who are overusing it. And and so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on opiate well, replacement therapy. I've seen people have great success with it, and I think the people that do have success with Suboxone is the big one right now they use for replacement because it's an agonist antagonist because you can take it and if you have the urge to use another opiate and you use it on top of the Suboxone, you won't get high. You will get no euphoria because it has an agonist in it. But I think, and there's meetings around now for people that are on opiate replacement, whether that be methadone or Suboxone, and I think we need to give them the, the respect that they deserve because a lot of people that are on it are just chronic people that this disease just keeps coming out of remission over and over again, that their brain, and I, and I tell everybody, we agree this is a, is a disease, so there's going to be a continuum of severity. There are some diabetics that are stable. There are some that lose their eyesight or their kidneys by the time they're 20. It's the same thing with addiction. Some people are more stable addicts, and then we have real fragile addicts. And those are the ones that many times need replacement therapy. And not there's another group that needs that, and that's real chronic pain people that cannot get any relief from chronic pain in any other way than opiates. And because they're addicts, the replacement and the controls that you have on that sometimes are the only solution. And personally, and I write about this in the book, we need to give them the respect. Now, having said that, every system can be abused. And there are people that are abusing the replacement system, and they're getting the methadone and the suboxone to get them through when they can't get the drugs that they really want. It keeps them from having the crushing withdrawal symptoms. But I think it's a mistake to take it away because of the people that abuse it because it is doing a lot of good for a segment of the population. Well, and I I don't know of any other chronic illness where public debate and regulation so controls the treatment of that illness. Um, You know, when you were talking about cancer, there are no, you know, there, there are so many regulations around medication, there's regulations about confidentiality, there's regulations around, um, you know, if you have a felony and and you're in recovery, you may not be able to get a student loan or you may not be able to get a job. And, you know, there's there's just so much, um, I don't know, stigma and discrimination that happens as a result of these illnesses that it, um, it can just be very overwhelming for people. Yeah, it can, and I've done a lot of media, and I've gone on the media, and I say that I'm an addict and that both my parents died of this disease. I didn't ask for this, 
and I try to take the shame out of it, and I've taken a lot of people to the media and helped them get scholarship beds because there's that whole affordability for treatment. But I always tell people before I do it, take them to the media, this isn't for everybody. Some people, the stigma is just too hard for them. But I just never let it keep me down. I look at myself as just having a chronic illness. And because my parents, I love them dearly, and I feel like they left this earth too soon, and nobody ever said to them, you have a disease, what can we do to help you? That really fuels my passion as an interventionist, that you need to get in there before people die. And But I know the stigma is still there, but I think it's a lot less than it used to be, but we still have a far, far way to go. So if somebody is listening to us, a family member, and they're concerned about their um, their their son or daughter, husband, wife, son, or whatever, what would you suggest that, what's the first thing they need to do? Is ask them what they can do to help them. When people call me and want to do an intervention, the first thing I say is, have you asked them to get help? And what can I do to help you get that help? And, and to do it in a non-threatening and a non-shaming way. Even when I do interventions, it's all about love. And you can always look at the glass half full or half empty. And some people will say an intervention or surrounding people that are having a problem that refuse to get help is an ambush. I said it's not an ambush. It's surrounding people with love and a real solution. But besides doing an intervention, I'm kind of like the last stop on the train. I think to get back to your question, the first thing you should do is just very gently say, it looks to me like you're having a problem. What can I do to help? And we'll be right back after this commercial break to talk a little bit more about interventions and ambushes with Joni. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour of Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Joni Gamble, who is a registered nurse and interventionist, and she's written two books called, one called Painkillers, Heroin, and the Road to Sanity, and the other one is The Interventionist. And before we went to break, we were talking about what families could do if they're concerned, and you brought up the fact that an intervention isn't an ambush. It sounds like your interventions aren't ambushes, but sometimes they can be. And could you just tell us the difference? Well, I think an ambush, if you have someone new in their career or is not very mature and hasn't worked at it a lot, 
I think, you know, you don't want to jam people up and twist their arms with consequences. You want to do it with love. You want to, a good intervention is almost like I say to people, it's kind of strange, but very rarely do people come in a circle to tell you how much they love you and how much they want you to get well and how they want you to live a long life. Very rarely do people come around and say how great you are unless it's your eulogy. It's an unusual circumstance. And when you surround people and you talk about and you say the day you were born or you talk about holiday memories or you have pictures, and even sometimes we write letters from someone who's passed on and is in another world and what they would hope for the rest of this person's life. And when you can get to the core of how emotionally connected this group is to the person, you have a very high probability of getting them to accept the help of rehab. Um, I mean, there are boundaries or consequences if people absolutely refuse. But the majority of people, if you do it in the right way with love, um, 90% of the people agree to go to get help. So what do you think... um... The other 10%, what do you think happens with them? Well, 5%, they go the weeks or days following the intervention because the conversation's been started and the brochure's on the table. And personally, I bug them by text message and say, is there anything I can do to help you? Do you have any further questions? So there are 5% that go after the intervention because there are boundaries or consequences. Sometimes you're at the place where a spouse just can't live with it anymore. And so that spouse will say, if you don't go and get help, I can no longer continue this marriage. But before you get to that point in an intervention, you always frame it up and say, this is not meant to be punitive. This is what the family deserves. This is what this person deserves. You can choose to live your life any way you choose to do that. And if that's to continue using substances, that's your choice. But my choice is, is I can't live with it. And when they realize the family is serious, that the spouse is going to leave the marriage or the parents are no longer going to give them money for their mortgage or whatever the boundaries are, then they change their mind and they go. There's the other 5% that never go and never get well. And in that case, the intervention is for the family, and especially if there's children involved. An example of that would be last week I did an intervention on a mom in her early 40s, and her two teenagers were with us. Those teenagers, supported by family members and myself, and I have a little dog that I take with me who loves kids and sits in the lap, sat in the lap of the 13-year-old. And the whole time the 13-year-old had tears in her eyes, she had this little dog supporting her and saying, Mom, I love you. I want you to get well. Well, in that case, the mother did go. She was a lovely woman, and she... We were good friends by the time we got to rehab, but let's say she didn't go and something catastrophic happened and she died. Those kids, for the rest of their lives, would always live knowing that they did the most that they could do. So even if an intervention doesn't end up with a patient going to treatment, it still is for the family. So they know that they've done all that they could do. So does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it does make sense, and I think that oftentimes what happens is is that people are left thinking, "I wish I'd done this," or "I wish I'd done that," or and, right. and they live with that their whole life. Right, they do. In this way, if that five percent doesn't get well, or they kill themselves in a car accident, or somebody else, the family doesn't carry around the guilt that they should have done more. And there is more that you can do. You can get power of attorney. You can go to court and get 72-hour holds. There are more extreme measures you can take. If someone's in a puddle uh, of bodily fluids in the living room and just can't help themselves, there are legal ways that you can go to get them help. And it gets more extreme. But I don't usually overwhelm families with that information until it might get to that point and they need that. Because you, when you're doing an intervention, you want to be very mindful that this family is very stressed out and you don't want to overwhelm them with what could happen in the future because it hardly ever happens. Most people go. And it's a lovely family, loving meeting. 
So um, how can people get a hold of you, Joni, if they would like to have one of those types of interventions? Well, I'm easy to find on the Internet with my name. My, my website is InterventionRN. Just remember, registered nurse, InterventionRN.com. But my name, Joni Gamble, if you Google me, you can find me very easily. And I'm on the East Coast. And so I primarily work in the mid-Atlantic area, but I also fly. I fly all around the country. And um, I'm also, people hate to talk about money. Uh, It's one of those, you know, bugaboo issues in our society. But I'm very affordable. People think someone with my profile must charge a lot. But I've kept my rates very affordable because people can barely afford treatment, more or less a huge price tag for an intervention. So you can just find me on the web, and then uh, my phone number and my my um, email address is there. And you, I, most people just call me, and um, I pick up my phone whenever I'm able to. Um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about there are different types of treatment, and you had mentioned um, twelve step world and treatment and and um, do you think there are other ways that people can get sober or do you mostly take people to um, 12-step based treatment programs? I do mostly 12-step but I do have an alternative rehab up in Pennsylvania Clarity Way that I really love because it does 12 steps. It's more individual. It does 12 steps if the patient if that's what they're into, if that's what they're looking for. But they do primarily cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is a little different. And they do smart recovery, which are recovery meetings for people that it's more cognitive, it's more thinking-based, think the drug through instead of the 12 steps. So there are other types of meetings and other rehabs that are non-12 steps. And in this book, Hazleton, my publisher, which I love, wanted me, and there's a whole chapter of alternative treatments to 12 steps because some people, I don't know, maybe it's because it's been around a while or there's been some negative stuff. I'm not sure why. Or Well, it's probably the higher power. People think it's all about religion and God, and it's not. Higher power for many people is the power of the group, the power of just the support group that you're going to, but there's sort of a misconception that it's religious. Um, But there are a few rehabs that are more cognitive behavioral-based that I do use. And I think that's an important uh, distinction for people because I know um, in the meetings in New England, oftentimes people hold hands and say they are father. So it's hard for people to understand, well, is this a religion? Is it not a religion? Or they say the serenity prayer. And so I, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions around that. There is, and it's like, well, it's not It's not Christian-based. I mean, yeah, Bill Wilson was, and, and Dr. Bob were Christian, and the 12 Steps um, I did have some, they came into play through some religious teachings, but they were also really smart about keeping the recovery, meeting, the recovery movement open-ended and not making it religious so that it was inclusive to everyone. And, yes, the Lord's Prayer is said a lot or the Serenity Prayer, but for a lot of people that higher power never goes any further than the power of the group. And, you know, community support on many levels is good for people in our society. I mean, church and religion, a big part of that is community. Um, And so just having those meetings to go to to have support of other people that are trying to get well from addiction is very important. And it's not necessarily religious, and neither 12 steps is not necessarily religious. And that's good, good to reemphasize that because I, that can be a sticking point for some people. It is. And I've had people, I've gone to interventions, and they're like, I'm willing to go to rehab, but I will not go to a 12-step-based rehab. And it might be because they've been before and they've attended meetings, and they've been unable to stay sober, and they've lost faith in it. And that's when you have to be able to think quick on your feet and mix it up, and that's what I do. And then I switch to a rehab that is non-12-step. And in my area, I mean, they're all over the country, but the one in my area is Clarity Way in Pennsylvania, and that's what I always defer to. And I've seen people have wonderful success in non-12-step uh, rehabs, so it's not an absolute necessity that you have to do 12 steps to get well. 
Um, one of the things that we talked about before we started was um, some of the laws that have changed um, yes. regarding opiate addiction, and I know you wanted to speak to that. So um, can you just share with us? Yeah, one of the are? biggest laws that's come about is, well, we know now, you know, there's uh, controlled drugs. Uh, the lower the control, the more potent it is. It's kind of a converse situation. So a controlled one drug would be like OxyContin. You can't call it in. You have to have a written prescription. Well, the, the number one abuse drug, hydrocodone, which is more commonly known as Vicodin, you now have to, starting as of next year in 2015, have a written prescription for it. It can no longer be called in. Right now, a lot of people on the weekends, they'll call their dentist up and say, oh, I have a bad tooth. It's probably going to need a root canal or whatever. Or someone will call up and say they think their kidney stone is acting up, and the doctor will call in hydrocodone or Vicodin. And again, we use 5%, Americans are 5% of the population, and we use 99% of the hydrocodone in the world. So and we need to take a break right now, so we'll come right back to this in just a minute. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. In order to keep your body strong and healthy, you need to keep your brain strong and healthy. It can be thought of as a rudder that steers your ship, so to speak. While you may look good, are you feeling your best? Join Dr. Will Rogers each week for Energize Your Life. Our show will help keep your body, mind, and spirit finely tuned in order to keep your quality of life lasting longer and more balanced. Energize Your Life can be heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour of Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Joni Gamble, who is an interventionist and registered nurse, author, and TV guest, and uh, has worked a lot um, in helping people recover from um, both opiate addiction and other types of addictions. But we were talking about the new laws before I had to interrupt you for commercial, Joni, and you were talking about the different levels of class of, of um, narcotics, so. Yeah, I was talking about the biggest change that is that hydrocodone, which is the number one abused narcotic in the United States, starting next year, you will have to have a prescription written to get it filled at the pharmacy. In other words, the doctor can't just call it in. You can't on the weekend call and complain about your kidney stone or your tooth and get a doctor to call it in. And so that will really help stem uh, some of the abuse of Vicodin, and that's probably the biggest law that has come into effect in a long time to try to curb prescription drug dependence. And there's also, and you might, go ahead. Well, there's also a controversial bill, and some people are calling it the enabler bill, which I don't think does it justice at all. It's where a caregiver of a known addict can be prescribed Narcan, and it's an injectable uh, little inject thing, sort of like an EpiPen that people use that are allergic to bees. 
you just pop it and you give it to the person. So if they're overdosing, you can give them the Narcan and that immediately reverses the effects of the opiate and the person does not overdose and die. People are saying by allowing caregivers to have this, the person is going to use more opiates. I don't think that's true. An addict's going to use what an addict's going to use, irregardless of what a caregiver has or not. And if it saves lives, you're going to save a life. Um, so I really disagree with it being the enabler bill. I just think it's modern science and anything that we can have that a person can have on hand to help save a loved one's life who's overdosing is really a benefit to, to addicts. And I believe first responders carry them. They do. They carry it on ambulances and rehabs carry it, um, uh, you know, just like they have other life-saving things. But now family members will be able to, and addicts themselves can be prescribed that, so they have that if they go over the top. Um, just not to give that to them doesn't mean they're going to stop using and it's not also going to mean that they're going to use more. Most addicts have a set point that, and hopefully they don't go over that and overdose. But if they do and they feel that coming on, they can give themselves the shot of Narcan and it can save their life. And you're right, first responders carry it. Um, and you also wanted to mention something about the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, you know, I wrote in my book that time would tell how much we, how much reimbursement. We saw a lot on CNN that the um, secretary, Kathleen Sibilis, the, the health and human services secretary, was talking about how only one in ten people gets help for an addiction or mental health disease and that how the Affordable Care Act was going to make treatment more accessible. And I have seen a lot of my patients that I've done interventions on the reimbursement from the carriers that the Affordable Care Act is working with have reimbursed at a very good rate. So they really have put their money, put their mouth where their money was, or money where their mouth was. I'm not sure which way to say that, but they have come up with money for reimbursement, um, like they promised they would. And um, can you let our audience know how they can get your book? Well, right now, I'm, I don't think it's out in Barnes & Noble. I looked for it the other day. My first book, The Interventionist, is out at, at, at all the bookstores. But you can get okay. it on Amazon. You can get it on the Internet at Amazon. is probably the most well-known place. And again, can you get it through Hazelton? Uh, yeah, you can get it through Hazelton, through their bookstore uh, directly, or through Amazon. And you just put my name in, just do a Google search, and it'll come up, and you can find it. And just so people know, it's Joni with an I yes. and Gamble with two M's. Two M's and two L's. Two M's and two L's. So what, is there something that you really want people to understand about opiate addiction that we haven't gotten to because we're think, almost out of time? I think you've covered it very well, Mary, and thank you again for having me on because you've covered it very well. And I think my biggest point is just to drive home that this is a disease. This is not a moral issue. Nobody would ever choose to have this affliction. And I think the questions that you've asked me have been, uh, you know, have pointed that out very clearly that this is a medical issue. It's not a moral issue at all. And I, and I concur. I, and people's brains are different. And people need to understand that, as you said, not everybody who uses an opiate is going to become addicted to it. But for some people... When I know when I've intaked people and they'll say, you know, the first time I, I smoked crack, I felt normal. The first time I used heroin, I felt normal. First right. time I drank, I felt normal. So you know that there's something different in that person's brain at a neurochemical level or at a receptor level or at a biological level. Oh, yeah, level. and you can, you can see it on MRIs. I mean, our, the, the addict alcoholic brain lights up very differently than the normal brain. So you can see it. This is definitely a mind-brain disease. That it is. And I want to thank you so much for sharing this with us. And, um, and thank you for your book and, and your good work. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Mary. It's been an enjoyable conversation. It's, it has for me, too. And have a great week, everyone. And we'll, hopefully uh, you'll be listening in again next week. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. 
Um, Joni, you know, when I was reading through your book, um, there's a very poignant story about a person that you knew who um, had spent 10 years in the military and had an addiction to opiates and ended up um, drowning. And, And certainly trauma comes to mind, and that's something that you write about. Can you just share with our listeners a little bit about trauma and well, what your experience has been? Well, if, you know, my experience is, is also it's been very well documented um, with the National Centers of Health Statistics that with opiate addiction particularly, um, you almost always see some sort of severe trauma in the person's past. There's something about opiates that soothes the part of the brain that has been injured by trauma, whether that be post-traumatic from being in the war. You see a lot of sexual abuse um, survivors with opiate addiction, rape survivors with uh, opiate addiction. So that is a major commonality that you see with opiate addiction. And someday science will figure out where it is in the brain that that the trauma resides and the opiate just seems to really soothe it. And you see it much more, much more trauma in opiate addiction than you do with alcoholism or, let's say, cocaine addiction. So what do you think, um, when, when you look at somebody who you're doing an intervention, with, an intervention with, when you see the trauma and the opiate addiction, what do you recommend for treatment? Well, you want to go to a rehab that does treat trauma, and some rehabs will treat trauma more than others. And you always want the patient to go to a rehab where they'll be the best served, like where there's, you want people to go where there's like people. So certain rehabs have uh, trauma tracks that are just stronger than other ones. And so you want to... Right. And there are some trauma tracks that are designed for first responders or for people in the military or for people that have had sexual abuse or emotional abuse as well. Yes, there are specific rehabs that have specific trauma tracks that uh, some people can really benefit from. But it's really interesting to me that opiate addiction has a very high rate of trauma in the past of the patient. That is very interesting. Um, And uh, thank you for that statistics because that's not something I knew. Oh, well, thank you, Mary. It's been very, very, I thank you very much for having me on your show. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.